Father, thank you for the peace that you offer us in Jesus Christ. God, peace with you when we were formerly your enemies. Peace in this life when there's so much chaos that can try to rob us. God, even peace with our brothers and sisters around us because we are one body, your church, our King. I pray, Father, as we look at Solomon asking for wisdom tonight, that we, by your grace, by the work of your Holy Spirit, Father, that we would gain wisdom as well, that we would hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last couple weeks in 1 Kings, uh, week one, David on his deathbed, and his oldest son, Adonijah, decides he's going to try to take over. Doesn't end well. David proclaims Solomon king. Solomon takes over the kingdom. Chapter 2, David dies, and he gives Solomon a few parting instructions. And uh, instructions like, you should follow the Lord. And instructions like, there's a few people that you should not let die a natural death. Uh, And the rest of the chapter was essentially Solomon carrying out those instructions and being firmly established as the new king of Israel. Tonight, we're going to move into Solomon's reign with one of the most important moments, if not the most important moment in the young king's life. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. So this is going to be an issue with Solomon. As we move on, we'll find out Solomon uh, had more than one wife. Right? It's not just this first one, Pharaoh's daughter, yay Solomon. Right? This is the first of, well, 300 wives. And that doesn't include the 700 concubines that Solomon gathered for himself. Now, many of those marriages would definitely be... um, political treaties that was very common in that day right you don't want you don't want Egypt attacking you so you marry Pharaoh's daughter because now if Pharaoh comes up and attacks Israel well then his daughter is going to be there and well nobody wants that right so that explains some of them but not all thousand for sure now unfortunately this becomes a huge problem for him The Israelites were warned by God when they came into the land, you know, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a minute, but don't do the things the people in the land do. And one of those things was don't marry their daughters and don't give your daughters to be married to them. They, in fact, were supposed to wipe them all out, which even in Solomon's time, right, Solomon gets to the zenith of uh, the kingdom of Israel, yet 
fails to drive out all the people. And one of the reasons God said that is he goes, they're going to turn your heart away from me. And unfortunately, uh, if, if you're wondering, did that happen to Solomon with those thousand women? Go read the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon basically says, I pursued everything, and I found out all of it was worthless. And he ends the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, I'm going to say it wrong, so I'm going to turn there real quick. Nope. I promise I have a general idea about where Ecclesiastes is. Page 830. Um, But this is his conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. So eventually, he came back. But not after being a lot, or there being a lot of problems. Uh, Now, he hadn't finished building his house yet. He hadn't finished building the house of the Lord yet. Nor had he finished building the wall all around Jerusalem. But remember, Jerusalem already had a wall. This is an expansion project. He wanted Jerusalem to be bigger. So in order to make the city bigger, he had to make the wall bigger. Now he says the people sacrificed on the high places because there was no house of the Lord. But this makes me wonder why they weren't at least sacrificing at the tabernacle or at least whatever part of it was still around. We're going to see this in a little bit. Now sacrificing on the high places was wrong uh, for one very simple reason. God told the people not to do it. In Leviticus uh, chapter 18, verse 3, the law states, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. And the people of the land, they worshipped everything. Uh, you know, if, if they worship nature, and they, they worship pleasure, and they worship the, the stars and the land and all kinds of stuff. Um, but one of the ways they would do that would be to go on the high places, right? If, if they're worshiping the stars, they want to get up as high as they can to be as close as they can to their object of worship. And God said, when you get into land, don't do that. But they did it anyway. Now Solomon walked in the ways of God with one exception, and that's that he was sacrificing on the high places. And I love this statement that Solomon loved the Lord and that he walked according to his word. That is essentially what he told us to do at the end of Ecclesiastes. It's essentially what Jesus told us to do on multiple occasions, right? When, when the lawyer came up to him and said, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. And really loving your neighbor is walking according to his commands. The Bible says in 1 John 4.19 that we love God because he first loved us. And Jesus, sorry, no, Jesus, we're no no false gods. Um, Jesus, poor Patrick's going to go back to Mission Hills and go, I went to this church, this guy was nuts. Um, (laughs) He was talking about some guy named Jesus. I don't even know who that is. Um, Jesus right, told us that that's the first and greatest commandment. And uh, that's quoted from Deuteronomy 6, 5, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then it says he walked according to his word. In James 1, we are told to be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
Jesus taught us the same thing in Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Right? He said, the, the man who hears my word and does it, and woman, if you are one, uh, the man who hears and does my word, I will liken him to, to the man who built his house on a rock. And the flood came and the wind blew and the house stood because it was built on the foundation. But the person who hears my word and doesn't do it, I liken him to a man who built his house on the sand. And then when the floods came and the winds blew, that house fell, and great was its fall. You know, it's great to come to church. It's great to read your Bible, to listen to podcasts, to have, you know, the Version Bible app on your phone. Um, you, you know, I, I love to listen to Alistair Begg just so I can, you know, enjoy the Scottish accent. Um, it's really fun when he gets excited. He starts rolling his R's really good. Um, you know, but in all of that, you can hear all of that. And, and really, in our nation, uh, in the Western world in general, we have access to the Word of God like no generation before us. I mean, e even 50 years ago, if you wanted the Bible with you, you had to carry one. Now we have it on our phone. We have it at our fingertips. And not just one. 50 years ago, what did you get? You got the King James Version. Nothing wrong with the King James Version, but that's what you got. Right? And slowly we started getting the NIV and the NASB and, and on and on and on and on. Now there's some 200 English translations. Um, but we were so limited. Now I can open my phone and I can read from any one of those English translations. And that's wonderful, isn't it? But what good does it do us to have that kind of access? What good does it do us to hear it and read it and, you know, to have it tattooed on our arm or bumper stickered on our car or the screensaver on our phone if we're not obeying it? Reminds me of a movie. I shouldn't tell this story. How many of you have seen Planes, Trains, and Automobiles? A few people, right? I shouldn't admit in church that I've watched that movie. There's only one really bad scene in it. But in that scene, uh, John Candy and, and um, Steve Martin, right? They're traveling and they're driving down the road and they both fell asleep and their car crossed over and they were going the wrong direction on the highway. But they're, they're humming along and these people pull up next to them and start yelling at them. You're going the wrong way. What? You're going the wrong way. And I can't remember which one of them said it. I think it was John Candy, but he looked at the other one and he goes, how do they know where we're going? <laughs> and they wait, thank you, thank you. And the next thing they notice, there's two, uh, uh, you know, 18-wheelers um, coming at them, and they go through the middle, the car catches on fire. Um, you know, so what good does it do if you get instruction and you don't listen to it? In John 15, starting in verse 10, Jesus said this, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You see, Jesus demonstrated to us that obedience. In the garden, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
And he demonstrated his love for us in his obedience to the Father, and we demonstrate our love for him and our obedience to him. Now, that obedience does not save us, right? You can, I've kept all, what was the, the, the lawyer who came to Jesus? Uh, you know, what's your reading? How, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? He goes, well, you know, and he rattles off a few of the Ten Commandments. He goes, and these I've kept my whole life. Jesus said, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and come follow me. Because you can keep the law, well, okay, you can't, but you can try to keep the law perfectly and think that you're going to be good enough to get in, but you're not. That's not how it works. We are saved by grace. Jesus died and rose again so that we could have eternal life in him when we believe. But evidence of our salvation is always going to be our obedience. All right, verse 4. Now the kings went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in truth and righteousness and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David. But I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Then God said to Solomon, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. They actually estimate, sorry, this is a little rabbit trail, they actually estimate that no one in the history of the world, you know, and we're talking Jeff Bezos and, and, uh, and Elon Musk and, and so on and so forth, that no one has ever had the wealth of Solomon. Verse 14, so if you walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered peace offerings, and made a feast for all his servants. So Solomon goes to Gibeon. He offers a thousand sacrifices. That's, that's a lot of, you know, sheep and, and bulls and goats and, and whatever else he decided to offer. Now, back in 1 Samuel, and this was a while ago when we were there, Saul uh, killed the priests of God in Nob. 
you remember that David had escaped from the hand of Saul and he went to the priest there and, and he said, you know, I'm on an errand for the king. So he lied and uh, he goes, but I need something to eat. And the, guy, the priest said, well, as long as, you, you know, you and the men with you have stayed away from women, you can have the showbread. So they did that and then took the sword of Goliath, which had been in the tabernacle at that time. And David went away. Well, Saul finds out, he goes down, gathers all the priests together. And uh, you remember the dude Doeg lied. No, he didn't lie. That's wrong. Doeg told, right? He ratted David out. He ratted the priests out. And Saul told his men to kill the priests. And his men were like, uh, no, we're not doing that. So he looked at Doeg and told him to do it. And this guy slaughtered like 70, I think, 71, 72. I can't remember the exact number of the priests. One of them escaped and went to David. Now, because all the priests were dead, it is believed that the tabernacle was then moved to Gibeah. So it makes sense that they were going there. But why go up on the high places if the tabernacle was there? So anywho, God comes to him in a dream. And he says, ask whatever you want. I'm pretty glad that God has never asked me that question. I'm imagining my answer might be a little different. Okay, so before I read 1 Kings chapter 3, and you know it's recorded in 1 Chronicles for us and whatnot, now, I'd be, if God asked me that question, I'd be like, I want to be like Solomon. I, I, I want wisdom, right, in the back of my mind thinking, so you'll do everything else, too. Um, but I wonder how many people would have answered that way. You've got to love this man's heart. Yeah, he made mistakes, but he said, you know what, God? I, I'm just a kid. I've been put in this position. I don't think I can do it. Can you give me the ability to take care of your people? And God says, good answer. And he goes, because you, you, know, you didn't ask for everything else, I'm going to give you everything. So Solomon's response, right? He praises God for the great mercy and kindness he showed to David. He displays humility before God, calling himself a child who doesn't know how to go out or come in. James 4, 6 says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He asks for an understanding heart. Really, the word there is a listening heart. Uh, so he can judge Israel and have discernment. And essentially what he's saying, God, I want to be able to hear you so that I can do this right. James 1.5 tells us that if we lack wisdom, we just have to ask God who gives generally to all without reproach and it will be given. Philippians 1, 9 through 11 Paul prays for the church in Philippi, and this is what he says. He goes, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are led by Jesus Christ. To, which are led, that word isn't there, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I think it's always a good thing for us to pray and ask God for wisdom and discernment. We live in a world that it's doing its best to distract us from the truth. And it's Satan's tactic, and it's been his tactic since the very beginning. When he came 
to Eve in the garden. He didn't look at her and said, you know, what would be really great is if you completely disregarded the command of God. You know, it'd be a really good idea, right? God told you not to touch the tree. Just go eat the apple. Go eat it. It'll be good for you. What was his first statement? Has God really said? And what was Eve's biggest mistake? Besides, you know, eating the apple. God said, you shall not eat of the fruit in the midst of the garden. For the day you eat of it, you will surely die. When Satan said, has God really said? She responded, well, we're not supposed to eat it or touch it. Now, I know that that doesn't sound like much, but she added something that God never said. And at that moment, Satan knew she was hooked. He got her to question God's word, got her to add to God's word. And the moment we do that, we are in so much trouble. And so God's response, right? Since you asked for wisdom, not riches or victory or all of that, he goes, I'm going to give you everything so that no one will ever be like you. And if you walk in my ways, he tells Solomon, you'll get to live a long time as well. So not only am I going to give you all of this, you're going to live long enough to enjoy it. Now, that's a conditional promise, of course, upon uh, Solomon being obedient to the word of God, uh, what they had at the time, but... I want you just to consider this. In Matthew verse 7, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, says, If you then, Jesus said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Uh, Luke eleven thirteen, 13, he has a slightly different slant. It's the same thing. But he says, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? to those who ask him. And then up in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, we read this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He can do, some translations say, exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. I love this. We talked about the resurrection power living in us on Sunday. Uh, if you missed it, it's, it's on our website or our Facebook page. And this idea that we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling inside of us. Now, that power isn't there so that we can do whatever we want. That power is there so that we can do whatever he wants. But it doesn't change that I think we, we, did, well, just, we don't take what's ours. right? And, and it's not like we're demanding. It's not a name it and claim it thing. It's that God has already given this to us and we forget. I'll give you a great example. Uh, When my wife and I were dating many moons ago, a week from today is the 30th anniversary of our first date. Uh, We're registered on Amazon. Uh, (laughs) I'm joking. Um, But at one point in time, after she killed one of her parents' cars, uh, the T-Bird, she ran it. Oh, it was great. City Hawkins dance. She ran it into a guardrail. wasn't her fault. It was raining and, and she doesn't know how to drive. Um, but 
hit an oil slick, right? Her parents or her dad, I don't, I don't remember. I can't quite remember, but it was like a 1978 Oldsmobile Cutlass. Two doors with a 440 V8. And sometimes my then girlfriend was dumb enough to let me drive it. Now, when she drove it, she didn't drive it like there was a 440 V8 under that hood. She drove nice, five miles under the speed limit, mostly because she was afraid of finding another guardrail. When I would get behind the wheel of that car, remember, I'm a teenager. I was really stupid as a teenager. I'm still kind of stupid. I was really stupid as a teenager. I was like, this thing's got a 440 V8. Now, my car, which was a little Toyota Celica, uh, which, which had a, you know, like a half liter four cylinder. No, it, it was a, <laughs> a 2.5 liter inline four. But still, um, it was no 440 V8. I'd get behind the wheel of that thing on the freeways in Southern California. And I'm like, let's let it out. Let's see what she can do. And that was a great car until... My wife drove it through a flood, and it had an old carburetor. Water got in the carburetor, got in the engine, cracked the block, end of the car. Um, I'm, you know, my wife's a much better driver now. But it's the same thing. We have, you know, to put it very crudely, we have the power of a 440 V8 inside of us, and we drive around. Like, like we're in, you know, a little four-cylinder engine. And that's not what God wants. No, he doesn't want us going around trying to get our will done. He has given us that power to give us life and that more abundantly. And he has given us that power so that we can obey his will, so that we can share the gospel, so that we can expand the kingdom, so that we can love and serve the people around us. But I think we would all be much better off if we stopped acting like it wasn't there because it is he goes back to jerusalem now he stands before the ark of the covenant and this is the next reason why i'm going why are they sacrificing on the high places it doesn't make any sense to me because where does he go he goes back to jerusalem he stands before the ark of the covenant which we know david brought back to jerusalem and he put it in a tabernacle a tent now, whether it was the tabernacle or it was just a, a place for the ark to be safe is irrelevant. The ark of God was there in Jerusalem. Why go to Gibeah and go to the high places? If the tabernacle was set up in Gibeah, why go to the high place? Why not go to the tabernacle? Now he comes back and he stands before the ark. So I just don't get why they were doing that, especially when they were commanded not to. But that changes. Now, real quick, because we've got to move forward. In Matthew 23, and you don't have to go there, but in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12, Jesus teaches us that when we, the, the person who humbles themselves will be exalted, and the person who exalts themselves will be humbled. Solomon here I mean, could you imagine what this would have looked like with, with a slightly different prayer? You know, God, you made me king over this people, and why not? I'm handsome. I'm the son of David. 
Clearly, I was the right choice. My brother Adonijah, he was a jerk. Glad he's dead. You know, what if that would have been his answer? So you know what I really want, Lord? Make me wealthy. Make me famous. Do you think God would have had the same answer? But because he humbled himself, God did the exalting. God did the exalting. I was playing pickleball yesterday. Right, you got to have a pickleball story. It's not a sermon for me if there's not a pickleball story. I was playing pickleball yesterday, and uh, I can get a little full of myself sometimes, in case you haven't noticed. And uh, I defended uh, an overhead shot. uh, And not only did I defend it, I sent it back up the line, and it was in. Now, my opponent looked at me, and they're like, wow, what a great shot. And I looked back with all the humility God has placed inside of me, and I said, what did you expect? I was in a mood. I hit like the next four balls either into the net or out because he who exalts himself will be humbled. And we ended up losing the game. Now, I don't know if we would have won the game had I not, you know, been an idiot. Um, But yeah, like I said, I was in a mood. But when we do the humbling, when we do our job, God will do his. Verse 16. Now two women, who were harlots, came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together, and no one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side, while your maidservant slept, and laid him in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. When I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, No, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is yours. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king says, The one said, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, your son's the dead one, mine's the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought him a sword. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, Oh, my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. And the other said, Great idea, cut him in half, and we'll each keep a half. How sick was this woman? The king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was with him to administer justice. So I I love this, right? Solomon asked for discernment to judge rightly. And here we go. These two harlots come in with this argument. And what does Solomon do? With great discernment and the wisdom of God, he judged rightly. Now, when the people saw that, they feared. Why would they fear? Now, could you imagine? Now, I've I've never stood before a judge in my life. Um, Praise God. Hopefully, I I never will. Uh, But could you imagine standing before a judge who you know that if you lie, that judge is going to know, right? That probably changed the way you gave your testimony a little bit. 
So Israel feared because, I mean, we're not going to get away with anything with this guy. And I think it was right to fear. Now we're going to get into chapter 4. So King Solomon was king over all Israel, and these were his officials. And um, the next 19 verses are a bunch of names. Like Azariah, the son of Zadok, and Eliareph, and Ahijah, and Jehoshaphat, and Benaiah, and Abiathar. Right, there's a bunch of names. We're not going to do that. And eventually, it's going to get to how each of the 12 governors provided food for Solomon's house, which we will talk about in just a minute. And so, he has now a kingdom. The only time, he's the only king where the kingdom was united under his entire reign. And it is greater than David, greater than Saul, and it is greater than any king who will ever come after him. The kingdom was never united under Saul. And the kingdom was only united under David for 33 of his 40 years as king. So, very interesting. Now, Abiathar's name, if you remember uh, just a chapter or so ago, Abiathar was banished. So why is he named here? Well, there's one of two explanations. Well, there's actually, there's one of three explanations. One, this list was compiled before Abiathar was banished. Two, Solomon had forgiven Abiathar and allowed him back as priest. Three, this is a different guy named Abiathar. Take your pick. We do have uh, this one guy. His name is Zabud, the son of Nathan, a priest. And he was the king's friend. That's up in verse 5. And I absolutely love that because it's good to be friends with the king. And that is so applicable to you and I, my dear brothers and sisters. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father... I have made known to you. I love that. You know we're friends with the king. I mean, we're adopted by our God and Father through Jesus Christ, and he calls us his friends. That's pretty awesome. Now, we're going to go up to verse 20, because I'm not going to you know, torture you by reading all those names. And in verse 20 through 34... It's, it just gives us the great extent of his kingdom. Now, if you look at verse uh, 22, this was Solomon's provision for one day. And this I'm going to read. 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures. Uh, right, So you had 10 that were, were fattened up in the stalls and 10 that were free range. 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. Right, So he had a little foie gras on the table while he was there. Uh, and he had dominion over all the region from the river Tifsa and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it is estimated, and I'm just going to throw this out there. It's estimated that the amount of food listed here, if you went back, you did the measurements and you did the math, would be enough to feed somewhere around 30,000 people. That was per day. Now, granted, Solomon had a large kingdom. Solomon had a number of servants, he had military, so on and so forth, but that was a busy kitchen in King Solomon's castle, or his palace. Now when you go up to verse 26, it does say Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. There are some who argue, uh, because there are some Hebrew manuscripts that say 4,000, 
Other Hebrew manuscripts say 40. Um, Considering the vastness of Solomon's kingdom and his wealth, I have no problem with it being 40,000 because it would be more, it writes, well, there's only 12,000 horsemen. Yeah, but if you had three or four horses pulling every chariot, 12,000 horsemen would need 40,000 horses. Uh, I have no idea. And I don't really care. Either way, it was a lot of horses. Then when you jump up to verse 29, it said, God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart. Like the sand on the seashore. And this phrase, largeness of heart, I really like. It doesn't mean that Solomon had uh, an enlarged heart. He didn't have a medical problem. But the heart being spoken of here is the center of our being, our will, our courage, our understanding, our wisdom, and our care for one another. I'm going to read that list again. It is the center of our being, our will, our courage, our understanding, our wisdom, and our care for others. So the word large here refers to being wide or broad. So the very essence of who Solomon was was found in the work that God was doing in him. And this is why it is so important for us to find our identity in Christ. I want my heart, the center of who I am, my will, my understanding, my care for others, I want that to be broad as I find my identity in Christ. Not in what I do, not in what I look like, not in where I live, not in my Italian heritage, not in any of those things, but in who I am in Christ. Your homework, if you'd like, go read Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 is a beautiful place that speaks to us of who we are in Christ that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. And then it goes on and talks about us being predestined. And it talks about uh, the work that he wants to do in us. And the seal of the Holy Spirit is our guarantee. And just so many beautiful things. But I, I just want to give you a bit of a warning. If you find your identity anywhere else, and I've been guilty of this at various times in my life, uh, it's, it's not going to end well. Because if you find your identity in your job and something bad happens at your job, or if you find your identity in, you know, even in your marriage or in your kids or in your hobbies, you know, I, I say it a lot because I really do enjoy pickleball. But there's people out there that they have all these shirts and they're like, pickleball is life. And I'm like, no, I like pickleball. And I like to win at pickleball. But... That is not my life. And if it ever becomes my life, hopefully somebody will point it out. But it is not my life. In all reality, one of the reasons I enjoy pickleball so much is all the people I get to meet and share the gospel with. (laughs) You know, it's become fantastic for that. But our identity has to be in him. Because when our identity is in him, just like building our house on the foundation so it's not moved, when our identity is in him, that means our identity won't shift with our circumstances. Because he doesn't change. Verse 32 and 33, it says that Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, 
the cedar trees of Lebanon, even the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds, creeping things and fish, and all men of all nations from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Um, so I've never counted all the Proverbs in the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. But we have at least some of what he wrote. They say, they, you know, being the people that are smarter than I, that we have roughly a third of those 3,000. Of the 1,005 songs, we only have three recorded for us in Scripture. Psalm 127, Psalm 128, and then Psalm 77. I don't know why I listed them out of order. Um, but that means there's a 1,002 songs that he wrote that we don't have. Uh, I always think it's funny. That people go, oh yeah, you know, David wrote 150, he wrote all, you know, he didn't. He wrote a lot of the book of Psalms, but uh, this morning I was reading uh, Psalm 122 or 123. It's a Psalm of Asaph, and we have the Psalms of the sons of Korah, and we have one of them, uh, 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 Moses wrote, Psalm 90, and here we have Solomon wrote a few. Anyways, um, but his knowledge of all these different subjects, right, of, uh, of trees and animals and birds and, 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 uh, entomology and ichthyology and all the various things that are listed here this is supernatural this is imparted by god uh, i seriously doubt and, and maybe he did spend time studying all of these things but still god gave him the wisdom to understand it and the wisdom to speak about it so his fame spread to the point that people came from all over to hear his wisdom uh, when we get up to chapter 10 that will include the queen of sheba um, but there we are that's where we're going to stop. Now, next week, we're not going to be in First Kings. Next week is movie night. Uh, still at 6 o'clock. Pretty excited. It'll be our last movie night of the summer. But it's been enjoyable. If you have suggestions for a movie, please let me know because I don't know what to watch. I had the idea that we should watch The Prince of Egypt. Because yeah. uh, it's a great movie, isn't it? The Prince of Egypt It's a great movie. Uh, well, if you have suggestions, let me know after I pray. Um, and in two weeks, we'll get back to First Kings, um, where we're going to actually see in the next few chapters Solomon building the temple. It'll be exciting chapters filled with measurements. Uh, so we may cover some of those chapters kind of quickly. Uh, but until then, I hope we are all encouraged. I hope we're all encouraged by uh, what we saw tonight. That we're encouraged to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and let him be the one to lift us up. Let's pray. Father, we just give you all glory. I thank you for the wonderful examples we have in Scripture. And I know as we've gone through the Old Testament thus far, I say it a lot, but it's just so rich. Filled with so many people who have come before us. Lord, and you show us their mistakes and you show us their victories. And you show us the grace you had on them for their mistakes, and we know we can come to you for mercy. And you show us the source of their victories, which is always you. Father, I pray that your hand would be upon us as we go throughout the rest of our week, that you would help us, Lord, to drive around like we got that 440 V8 inside of us, remembering that we are your children, that we are your friends, and that you have filled us with yourself by your Holy Spirit. May we live accordingly. All for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen.